The scripture reading for this morning comes from Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 through 18. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. This is God's word. Before we begin uh, our, our sermon for today, I wanted to just emphasize a few uh, additional announcements. Um, one, Regarding the choir, if you're interested in participating in the choir, um, a, a sign-up sheet will, will, a sign-ups will actually take place over the next two weeks. So feel free to just make your way to the back after worship, and uh, the uh, Charlotte will be able to stand in the back and um, have the sign-up sheet ready for you so that uh, you could sign up. Um, I know that the choir they they've they used to meet probably, what, eight or nine times, and it's, it's dropped dramatically. They constrict, and they've, they've really concentrated these practices, and uh, it's really brought them together, and it's an incredible um, ministry to our congregation and for the Lord um, during the course of Easter and Christmas. So if you're interested, just remotely interested, wanted to check it out, see what it's about, um, we welcome you to be a part of that uh, experience. Um, the other is, uh, if you probably have uh, in your bulletin uh, a flyer with respect to the Christian education, the Sunday schools. Um, here at Metro Presbyterian Church, we, we've arrived at a place now where uh, we just really passed the first stage of church planting, in a sense. Um, so we're still very young as a community. And one of the great things about being a church plant at this stage is there are really a, a, we're growing in the number of opportunities for you to plug into our church. One of the great ways to plug in is through adult Sunday school. They meet, we'll be meeting either in the mornings on Sundays, particular Sundays, I believe this next series is only going to be seven sessions, spanning between March and May. So over the course of those eight or nine weeks, 
with various breaks in between, we'll be meeting over the course of seven sessions. We'll have one series taking place in the morning uh, and one in the afternoon after worship. So it's a great opportunity for you to connect with a smaller body of people if you're not already connecting with people in a community group or in some other fellowship or service here in the church. But we really invite you. um, It's a great opportunity to learn about scripture and about our values. Um, our, our gospel series, the centrality of the gospel, if you're interested in hearing the engine that really drives our ministry, everything about our ministry, um, that's the centrality of the gospel. We have two very capable uh, gentlemen who will be teaching that class, and I'll be teaching the class um, that's really an Old Testament survey. If you want to understand how people always talk about the Bible being a unified whole, 66 books written over the span of thousands of years, and yet it's a unified whole. How, does, how did God work in his sovereign grace to, to give us his word and reveal himself? And that's really what that series is about. If you want to understand not just the nature of the books, but how just God's sovereignty kind of works through in his relationship with us and how Christ, again, is at the center of each of those um, experiences throughout scripture. So um, please consider joining. They don't, it doesn't really start until March 6th, but if you're interested, please consider prayerfully and, and join us for the Adult Sunday School program. Now we're going to get to our regularly scheduled program here. Um, Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 to 8. We've been looking at the series, um, and we called it Idols of the Heart, because an idol is something apart from God that we cling to to give us meaning or significance, or worth. And each week, um, we've been addressing common idolatries, common idols, the idol of blessing or work. Work can be an idol. Control can be an idol. Today, we're looking at the book of Genesis, and we're looking particularly at the life of Abraham. And, And the life of Abraham teaches what it means to live on the basis of a call. And that goes beyond our personal ambition, beyond our wealth, beyond our pursuit of of money. What's the background here, the context? God had called Abraham out of his social and economic and cultural and religious context. And this isn't just an act of social or cultural suicide in his day. I mean, in his day, to leave your family was certain failure. This is a world with no cars, no planes, no media, no internet. There's no such thing as news. To leave your culture is certain failure. To leave your family is certain death. But in Genesis chapter 12, God appears to Abraham and he promises that through Abraham, he would redeem the entire world through one of his descendants, one of his sons. And so Abraham, by, Abraham, by faith, he goes to Canaan, this faraway land, and he waits there. And in this passage, we're going to see three men. We're going to see the wealth and the ambition of these three men. And we're going to draw some incredible conclusions about God's faithfulness to us and his call, what it means to live on the basis of a call. Three men, three points. So the first ambitious man, the first man of wealth here is Lot. In verses 1 to 4, we see Abraham, and Abraham's gone, gone wealthy with his livestock and his silver and his gold. And, and in verse 5, you have Lot, who's Abraham's nephew, He's moving along with Abraham. He's a nomadic tribe. So as Abraham moves, Lot's moving. And since Abraham gets wealthy, Lot also grew incredibly wealthy to the point where in verse 6, the land that they were spreading out into couldn't support them together in one place. 
And so by the time we get to verse 7, quarreling starts to arise between Abram's men and Lot's men, between Abram's workers and Lot's workers. They're quarreling about the land. They're quarreling about their livestock, their share. When nomadic people get wealthy, they increase in livestock. And as you increase in livestock, that means that you're going to have more tents. To have more tents because you need more workers, more hired men. And it means you need more food. So the land that was used, everyone lived off the land. They were starting to quarrel over that. Now, in this text, the land that, call, that God called Abram to live on, really what it means is that it's maxed, maxed out. The two of them could not get richer if they were both together where they were. That's the dilemma. It's another, another way of saying that is their financial portfolio has maxed out in the positions that they were holding. And, and so Abram says in verse 8, come on, we're family. Let's stop arguing over this. Let's stop fighting over this. One or both of us has to make a move. And so in verse 9, Abram tells Lot, he says, you can choose. You can choose to go to the left or go to the right. Now the text says that Abram and Lot were between the land of Bethel and Ai. It's a very dry, a very arid part of Canaan. But just further down, if you travel 20 miles down, Near the Dead Sea, the land was green, it was lush, it was green, it was fertile, it was watered, there was irrigation there. And so in verse 10, Lot looks up and he sees this land and he saw that the plain of the Jordan was well watered. And he says, that's where I will go. That's where I'm going to go. It was the one place that Lot could go to, to significantly grow uh, in, in wealth. And so in verses 11 to 13, Lot, he chooses that entire plain of the Jordan he moves just outside of Sodom, and uh, basically in chapter 14, by the time we get to chapter 14, he moves into that land of Sodom. And so he's really just smitten by this land. He's captivated by this land, completely taken by this land. And even though Sodom is a wicked land, he's just completely captivated by it. Lot, Lot is an ambitious man. Lot is a wealthy man. He's an ambitious man. He's wealth and financial growth. They've really grown to become more important than God's promise to him and his family. So uh, God tells Abram, I want you to avoid that richer land. I want you to avoid the fertile area underneath, lower than the, than the land of Canaan. Stay in Canaan. Wait for the promise. But Lot, he couldn't wait. Even though he was a member of, of Abram's family, even though he loves his uncle, he decides to leave. So financial growth, getting ahead, it was more important than God's promise. And, and because it was more important than God's promise, Lot's temperament has changed. Lot's men, they, they're changing. They're starting to argue. They're starting to fight for growth. They're searching. They're desperate for wealth. And, and really, that's become more important than his family, more important than his peace, more important than God himself and the promises that God had for him. Now, you have to think about this. Is it wrong to grow in wealth? In and of itself, is it wrong to grow in wealth? Obviously, the answer is no. Of course not. But there's a lot more going on here. Robert Alter, he's a liberal scholar um, that taught at Brandeis University. I believe he's teaching at the University of California, Berkeley. But he's really the fo- he's a liberal scholar, but he's the foremost authority on the ancient Hebrew. And, he's, and he says, when, in his commentary, he talks about ver- uh, verse 10 here. When, when the text says, Lot looked up, 
and saw that the Jordan plain was like the garden of the Lord. It was well watered, like the garden of the Lord. The text is actually saying in the Hebrew, Lot lifted up his eyes. So it's like he's looking out, but he's really like looking up. And he says, wow, this land is lush. This plain is beautiful, like the garden of the Lord. In other words, what Lot was seeing, he was not looking at objectively. He was not looking at it with objective eyes, according to Alter. When he lifted up his eyes, when he saw the Jordan plain, he saw the lush greens, the lush plains. It was great for raising his flocks. It was great for growing crops for for a portion of time. But this description was, was really what you saw here, that it was like the garden of the Lord. It was the heart's interpretation of what Lot was seeing, that it was like the garden of the Lord. It's not just something, that phrase, it's not just something that was written in there for poetic flair. The garden of the Lord is the Garden of Eden. And when Lot lifted up his eyes, when he he saw what was there, it stirred his heart. It captivated his soul. There was something spiritual happening. There was a lot more going on than just, wow, we can kind of spread out and you can have your share and I can have my share. He lifted up his eyes and he saw something there that stirred him, that captivated his soul. Something very spiritual was going on here. And what the narrative was saying here is that when Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that it was more than just a way to get rich, it was more than just a way to increase his financial position, his financial holdings. The Garden of Eden was not, what is it? It was not just a fertile land. It was a place of ultimate richness. It was a place of ultimate peace, what they call the shalom, a spiritual word that captivates money and family and power and security. The Garden of Eden really represented the whole beauty, the whole richness of life, the whole rest that, that we so desperately crave. Because in the garden, man was at peace with God. In the Garden of Eden, man was in union with God. God walked with Adam in the garden. And so in the garden, man had security, ultimate security. Man had identity. Man had purpose. Man man knew that he was significant, that he had power. There was no insecurity. And Lot is thinking, if I go there, if I go out there, I will find myself. I will find who I am. I will know who I am. If I go there, I will be known. Then I know that I'll be important. Then I know I'll be strong. Then I know I'll have power. Then I know I can increase my potential and recognize it and know it. Remember the movie Chariots of Fire? I, I quote this all the time. Of course you remember. If you haven't seen it, you still remember. Harold Abrams, he's competing for the gold medal in the Olympics. He's a sprinter in the 100-yard dash. True story. But the reason why he's working so hard is what? It's not just the medal. It's more than the medal. He says, I will raise my eyes. Incidentally, I will lift up my eyes. I will raise my eyes. I will look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? That's just before the race. That's what he says. He's saying, if I win, then I know I am worthy. In the early 1990s, there was a movie called School Ties. Some of you, I was in college around that time. So the movie School Ties, it was about a low-class Jewish high school quarterback who was given a scholarship to play football in a premier private school uh, in the country. I believe it's in New England somewhere. 
Everyone there is spoiled. Everyone there is rich. All their families are politically connected in some way. They're all rich. They're all spoiled. And David Green, he was played by Brendan Fraser. David Green, he's this poor, naive person from a Jewish slum. He just has a gift of playing football. And he's trying to understand. He's trying to navigate around the school because he knows it's anti-Semitic. It was at a time when everybody was against Jews. And, and at the same time, he's just trying to understand how to fit into this kind of rich culture. He doesn't understand it. And so he's got to hide himself, hide his values, hide his faith, hide his background. And, and one of the spoiled rich uh, children, uh, it, played by Matt Damon, uh, who, who plays this character in the movie, this is what he says. He says, good grades, the right schools, the right colleges, the right connections, these are the keys to the kingdom. None of us ever goes off and lives by his wits, his values. We do things they tell us to do, and then they give us a good life. They give us an identity. And so Matt Damon, his character, he's willing to lie, and he's willing to break the honor code, and he's willing to cheat, whatever it takes to get ahead. That's Matt Damon's character in that movie. This is what the text is saying. Whenever you say that my primary desire I need to get wealthy. I need to do well financially. Or I need to have a good family. I need to have well-behaved children who succeed in life. I need to have influence in my society. I need to, I gotta, I'm, doing, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to meet Mr. or Mrs. Right. I need to be successful in my career. Whenever you say that, it's not really true that that's your primary desire. There's always more. Because we don't know who we are. We don't know what we're made for. We don't know what we're worth. There's this deep insecurity driving that, this deep-rooted sense of inadequacy, of desire. That's why we need to know what we're worth. So when a person says, my heart's desire is to find somebody who's going to love me and cherish me, marry me, it's really not just about love or relationships. What you're saying is, then I know I have worth. Then I know I'm beautiful. In the original Rocky movie, lots of movies today, in the original movie Rocky, why does Rocky Balboa, why does he need to go to distance with Apollo Creed? He doesn't even want to win. He doesn't think he can win. He knows he's going to lose, but he just wants to go to distance. Why? Because he says, then I will know that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. The Bible tells us that we have this sort of built-in desperation We're constantly looking to prove our worth, small ways, big ways. It starts out playing sports games, uh, you know, on your video game console. But it really just becomes so much more because we're walking with God in the Garden of Eden, in the actual Garden of Eden, in the actual Garden of the Lord, Genesis chapter 2 and 3. We knew we had value. We knew we had worth. We were walking with God, but because of our sin, we lost it all. And ever since that day, There's been this built-in desperation in our souls that's written into our DNA, our spiritual DNA. Ever since, we've been trying to get back into the garden on our own. Because if we believe, if I can just get in there, if I can just get back there, there's this built-in mechanism, this desperation in our hearts that says, you've got to get back in there. There's something that's programmed in us that says there's something there and we've got to work, do whatever we can to get back in there. If I can get back in there, if I find it, The inner emptiness in my soul will be gone. The inner alienation in my heart will be gone. The inner loneliness in my soul will be gone. The inner ugliness that I feel about myself will be gone. 
And so when you come back to Lot, he lifts up his eyes. What does he see? It's more than just an opportunity. It's more than just an opportunity. I need this opportunity. Why? Lot has set his heart on his wealth to save him. Lot has set his heart on his wealth to complete him. And it doesn't. If you read the next four or five chapters, Lot enters into Sodom, the wicked land, and he actually comes into ruin. Ruins his family, ruins his life. Whenever we say, now I have my garden, this is my dream, you're putting eternal hopes on a very finite thing. It's going to fail. It's like driving a Mack truck over a walking bridge. That walking bridge, it's not meant to hold. It's, going to collapse. it's bound to collapse. At some point, it's bound to collapse. So Lot is this ambitious, driven man. He's willing to trample over Abram and his men. He's willing to quarrel with an, a fight with his Abram, who's his senior. In that culture, you don't argue with your seniors, right? Um, he breaks away from Abram. You're just, in that day, it's unheard of to break away like that. He's got a blind ambition. He's looking for contentment and success without contentment with a capital C, without success with a capital S, himself. It's a person, and it leads him to ruin. That's the ambition of Lot. Now we go to the ambition of Abraham. The ambition of Abram, the second man, the second man of wealth and ambition. He's different than Lot. What Abram does here is, it actually seems sensible, seems logical. It sounds like he's just appealing to his logic, but it's really not. Abram lived in a patriarchal society where your age, your generation, your masculinity, and your seniority, it meant everything. And so here, he's the patriarch, he's the head of this nomadic tribe. This entire tribe, this clan belongs to him. And yet in verse 9, he says, Lot, I'm relinquishing my right to choose first. You can choose. That's what he says. Lot, you choose. If you go to the left, I'm going to go to the right. If you go to the right, I'm going to go to the left. Abram, he knows. He's got three things. He's got three things, but he can't keep them all. He's got his relationship with his nephew, Lot. He's got his relationship with his money, his wealth. And he's got his relationship with God. He knows at this moment, at this juncture, he can't keep all three of them. Something's got to give. Something's got to go. So he's got three choices. One, he can travel with Lot. They can go into Sodom together. Then he'll have his relationship with Lot. Then he'll increase in wealth, but he'll lose his relationship with the Lord. The promises of God, he'll lose that. His relationship with Lot and money will be intact, but he'll be abandoning his promise. Now, second, the second thing he can do is he can become the patriarch. He can say, yeah, we need to split up. We need to go separate ways, but I will choose I will choose that land down there, 20 miles down. That's my land. He can take it first. What's going to happen is he would have increased in wealth, but he would lose his relationship with Lot. Lot would grow embittered. Lot would feel abandoned because he's stuck now here in this land, this dry, arid part of Canaan. He would feel abandoned, and he would lose his relationship with the Lord. Or he could do what he did. He gives Lot the choice. He says, Lot, I want you to choose. Knowing what Lot's going to say, knowing what Lot is already driven by, he says, Lot, I'm going to let you choose. And so in this way, he maintains his relationship with Lot. He maintains his relationship with the Lord. 
And he's already wealthy. He's got, he says, you know, I have enough. My financial portfolio is kind of maxed out. I'm just going to keep what I've got and maintain this for the rest of my life. But in that way, God has become more important than his family. That is absolutely unheard of in that day. That is remarkable in that day. God has become more important than his wealth. Absolutely unheard of in that day. You fought to survive in those days. It was a harsh, arid land, almost uninhabitable in some parts. Unheard of. It's not like you had coins. I mean, he had some silver. He had some gold. But your wealth was your land. Your wealth was your livestock. So it was absolutely unheard of in that day to put God above that. But Abram chose to love the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. And Abram chose to love his neighbor as himself. And he chose to empty himself, let himself go. You know, on one hand, it was a wise choice to retain Lot as an ally because if you see in verse 7, it says that the Canaanites and Perizzites, they were right there. So they were also inhabiting the land. So to have another ally and grow with that ally is a, is a wise choice. But more importantly, Abram's not worried about his provision, clearly. He's not worried about his provision here. He's not worried about his security here. It's the call. That's what he was concerned about. It's the call of God. From Abram, we learn a lot more about the call here. That being called by God, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, before I used to be a very stingy person, and now I'm just like throwing money all over the place. That's not what it means to heed the call of God. You know, before I used to be really promiscuous, and now I'm just really pure. I'm just really chaste. It's not less than that, but it's a lot more than that. The Christian life is not less than those things, but it's a lot more than those things. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews explains this. In reality, Abram's life here, he kind of encapsulates it in three or four verses here. I'm just going to read verses 8 and 10 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abram, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance. He obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations. He was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. In other words, there was a city down there that was lush and green and well-watered and irrigated, and it was rich, and and it was going to make him rich. But he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. That's what he was looking forward to. The essence of a call is not, I used to make stupid decisions and now I'm making good decisions. The essence of the call is there's a change in foundation, a complete change in foundation. That before I used to found my life in material wealth, no matter how much I have or didn't have, it's not founded on a change in behavior. It's not founded on material possessions. It's building the essence of faith, the essence of living out uh, based, uh, your life based on the call of God. It's building your life on a spiritual foundation. Now, if you think about it, we all have something that we can't face losing. Every one of us here has something that we, the idea of losing that thing just absolutely just destroys us. The call of God, you know, what we're saying is, if I lose this thing, it's my greatest nightmare. 
Because if I lose it, then I'm going to lose my identity. I'm going to lose my sense of worth. That's what your spiritual foundation is. That's what we mean by spiritual foundation. If I lose this thing, then I've lost my worth. The call of God is to change your foundation, to reorient your foundation, to build your foundation on something other than material wealth to make or break your identity. Having the perfect family to make or break our identity. It's to lead and abandon, on one hand, one set of foundations and cling to or build it on your relationship with the Lord. When God told Abram, I want you to leave your people, I want you to leave your home, what he's really saying is, I want, you know, Abram was a wealthy merchant. I want you to leave this life. And I want you to make my righteousness your foundation, my approval your joy, my love, your identity. I want you to build your identity on something that's going to be eternal and something that will provide the ultimate sense of peace, the ultimate joy, the ultimate strength, the ultimate power, the ultimate identity. Then and only then will you be free. Now, uh, what happens is Abram has chosen to leave. He's abandoned, unheard of in his day. He's abandoned those things. And God is saying, now you'll have a real identity. Now you'll have real security. Now you're going to have real joy. Now you're going to have real options. Now you're going to experience your true potential. Now you're going to be on a true, everlasting foundation. Now you can live a big life. Now you can take big risks without fear. Now you can have real courage. Now you can suffer unending loss, and yet you will still be on solid ground. That was the foundation that God was building for Abraham. See, Abram knew how subtle we can think that we've changed foundations and yet haven't changed. Abram knew that. His wisdom was not in making these great decisions. He knew how subtly we can think we're built on a certain foundation and yet haven't. Because at the first part of this text, if you, think, if you read this first part, it kind of is a tail end of chapter 12. The author mentions that Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev to the place in between Bethel and Ai where he first built an altar. That means that there used to be an altar there. He had first built an altar there. It was still there. It means that there was a time before when Abram actually did leave Canaan. So he actually left Canaan and he had built an altar there really as a commemoration of his experience there before. He had left Canaan, gone down to Egypt out to that area, and why? Because a famine hit. God had made this promise to him. He had come all the way to Canaan, and God, he was waiting on the Lord, and what happened was there was a famine, a famine hit. And so what does he do? He immediately leaves that land. He just instantly reacts. That was his failure. And what happens is because he enters into Egypt, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, becomes attracted to Abram's wife, Sarai, And Abram, to cover over himself because he was afraid, he knew that if the Pharaoh realized that Abram was married to Sarai, the Pharaoh would have him killed. So to cover over that, he lies about Sarah, his relationship with Sarai, and he says, she's my sister. And that way he could stay alive. And what he does really, he peddles her, he pimps her off to the Pharaoh. That's really what happens to save himself. 
And so that just brings, I mean, if you think about what that does to the trust in that relationship, what that does to the family, what that does to just his heart and his soul, the guilt that he's harboring and, and burdensome, and yet God rescues Abram. He draws him out. By his own hand, he rescues Abram and his wife because the Pharaoh takes her into his harem, and yet God rescues Abram. And by the time he comes out of, the, out of Egypt, he experiences complete loss. He's just ruined out of Egypt. And now, in this chapter, he comes back to the very spot on his way down where he built an altar. This is really a pilgrimage of repentance for Abram. What you're really seeing in the beginning of chapter 13 is Abram coming back, tracing back the steps to where he had failed. And he's now come back to that place where he had built an altar. And so he's in this reflective mood, with this reflective mode of seeing all, the, all that he had done when he had taken life and matters into his own hands. And how much of a coward. And this, is, this is the patriarch is a coward. The patriarch is just looking after himself. The patriarch is just thinking about his own life, his own security. This is the man that represents his entire clan and his family. And he's seeing his utter failure and his loss, his ruin. He's come back and he's tracing back the steps to the spot where he failed. And he realized, this is all by grace. By God's hand have I been rescued. And we can say, but there's a famine in my life. Pastor, I need to eat, don't I? Pastor, we need to survive here. I'm in debt. There's a recession. I need security. In chapter 13, this is Abram's pilgrimage of repentance. This is where he realized his foundation has changed. And he begins to rest in the grace of God from here on in. You know, you can see how genuine your faith is by looking at how you deal with your failure. That's how you know how genuine your faith is. To heed the call, yes. To heed the call means you have to abandon some things. But first, we're called to find ourselves in him. Rest in him. In the Lord. If you can't deal with failure, then you still haven't made that foundational shift in your life. If your failure has gone so deep and all you're doing is wallowing in the consequences and all you're doing is is wallowing in the failure itself and all you're doing is thinking about the loss and you can't get past it, then you haven't made the foundational shift. Abram failed. Abram failed, but he's retraced his steps. That's repentance. Retracing your steps. Turning to the call of God again. Trusting in God again. Looking at your failure and saying, no, I'm going to abandon these things because I rested on a certain foundation. I'm going to abandon those foundations. I'm going to rest and trust in the Lord because he has called me and because he has promised these things and because it is for his glory and really I know that every decision, every call is for my good. It's to trust in those things. That's what it means to, and God says, you do that, you're going to live a big life. You're going to be able to live a huge life, a big life. You're going to be able to take on big risks because of that. You're going to be able to make decisions without anxiety in your life. And God is so faithful. God is so faithful. In verse 14, God doesn't just leave Abram there. What does he do? He takes Abram to this high place. He says, lift up your eyes. Robert Alter, that commentator, says, the place that where Abram was, where he lived in Canaan, there was a, a lookout. If you actually go there, there's a huge lookout. So, in essence, God had taken Abram up to this lookout. And he says, I want you to look out, Abram. I want you to lift up your eyes. And you see all that land? It's going to be yours. 
everything to the, as far as your eye can see, it will be yours. Abram is taken to the heights. Meanwhile, at the same time, simultaneously, what's Lot doing? He's walking down to the depths. There's an incredible literary irony there if you haven't seen it. That's what's going on. It's really the trajectory of their lives at this point in their relationship to the Lord. Lot lifts up his eyes, and everything he sees, when he lifts up his eyes, everything he sees, he says, that's going to be mine. It's going to be gain, and yet it was loss. It was loss. Abram, everything he sees at ground level, it's loss. Dry land, uninhabitable, maxed out. And yet, God says, lift up your eyes. Everything you see is going to be gain. Everything you see, I will give to you. All that you can see, I'm going to give it to you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. It's all by sheer grace and grace alone. Plunge your failures. Plunge your hopes. Plunge your ambitions in the grace of God. He will make you greater than you ever imagined yourself you could be on your own. He will make you greater than you ever thought you could be, that you could ever earn on your own. How is that possible? You have to look at the third ambitious man. Centuries later, a true descendant of Abraham a true son of Abraham, Jesus is taken up to a high place. In Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 7, the devil led Jesus to a high place and showed in an instant all the kingdoms and their authority and splendor. Now, come on, there's no place, there's no place in the world that you can stand where you can see every kingdom in the world. So what the devil was doing was trying to heighten Jesus' senses. He takes him to this high place and says, look out. You see these kingdoms? All of this can be yours. That's what the devil says to Jesus in Luke chapter 4. And he's trying to entice Jesus. And he says, you know what, Jesus? You can be king. He was already king. But he says, you can be king. You can be important. You can have power. You can be worthy. And I can give it to you without you ever having to suffer, without you ever having to go to the cross. And how does Jesus respond? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus responds, Worship the Lord your God only. Worship the Lord your God only. Abram, he let go of his wealth and gave it up for Lot. Jesus Christ gave up the ultimate wealth and gave it up for who? He gave it up for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, the Apostle Paul, I believe it's written in your word of encouragement, he says, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Amazing passage. In other words, Abram points to a greater Abram. Jesus Christ left home. Jesus Christ left his family because of a call. And that call wasn't at the risk of danger. It was at the cost of danger. That call was not at the risk of his life. It was at the cost of his life. It meant certain death for him. Jesus Christ left the ultimate wealth. And on the cross, what does he do? He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying here is, now I've given up. I've emptied myself of everything that is of value to me, everything that is of worth to me, my ultimate wealth, I'm suffering the ultimate emptiness. I'm experiencing the ultimate loneliness. I'm becoming the ultimate ugliness. He's saying my significance, my worth, my identity, my center has departed from me. 
my God has forsaken me. And why? In Hebrews chapter 12, the author writes, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us lift our eyes and fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. What is he saying? He's saying, let's lift our eyes and look to Jesus. Why? Because what do you think Jesus lifted his eyes to when he was on the cross? What was his joy that was set before him that when he lifted up his eyes, it was worth all the suffering. It was worth God departing from him. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, what did he see when he lifted up his eyes? It was you. It was you. You were worth the suffering. You were worth the shame. You were worth the pain. You were worth his center, his identity being torn apart. That's the significance that we need. That's the worthiness that we need. You are worth it. When you see that you were Jesus' ambition for God's glory, then Jesus Christ can become your ambition for God's glory. You have everything you need in Christ. You have everything you need. You just need to rest in him. To the extent that you believe that, what I just said there, to the extent that you believe that, you can surrender to the Lord. You can trust in the Lord. You can obey his word. You can give up your need to prove your worth through your wealth. And when you do that, that's your freedom from idolatry. That's your freedom from the idol of money. That's your freedom from the idol of wealth. That's your freedom. But, you know, I need to feel secure in life. I understand. We've all experienced traumas in my life, in our lives. You know, for me, growing up, I was in a single family, single, single mother home. And my father, having suffered a tragic death, as a child experiencing that trauma, for a long period of time, you have no idea, for a long period of time, I was the man of the house at the age of six. And so every night, my mom would go to sleep, my family would be uh, sleeping, I would run through the house and make sure every window and every door was locked. You know, that was, that's, that's a part of my trauma. We all have traumas in our lives that really probably push us and influence us in a particular way so that we need security, we need defense, we need an advocate, we need certain things in our lives. But you know, if you think about it, the gospel sets you free from the deepest anxieties of our souls. And that's why when you have freedom from the idol of money and your wealth and your ambitions, you can give. You can sacrifice. You become radically generous. You can learn to empty yourself. Why? Because Jesus Christ emptied himself for you. Everything that Jesus was, down to his identity, he emptied himself so that you could have it. It didn't just go into nowhere. He gave it up for you to have. He gave up his sonship so that you could be sons. Read Galatians chapter 4. He gave up his sonship so that you could be sons. You can have all the rights of sons. Now, in your Bible, some of our modern Bibles, it says so that you could be sons and daughters. But if you think about it, if you were a woman thousands of years ago reading that text, being a daughter meant very little. The Apostle Paul says you, even a woman, even a woman who is destitute, a widower, poor, grew up as an orphan, can be a son a firstborn son in God's eyes. That is power. That is identity. That is significance. That is purpose. If you're having trouble with failure, getting over your failures, if you're quarreling with people because you want respect, 
If you feel troubled, if you feel weary, lift up your eyes. See the cross of Christ. If you're struggling with getting over certain sins in your life, you're just struggling with it. You said, how can I be a Christian? How? Because I can't get over certain things. With the gospel, there's power. Jesus Christ gave up his power. Why? So that you could have his power. The Spirit of God residing in you, that's power. It was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead. You don't think it's powerful enough to help you through your, your troubles, to help you through your suffering, to help you through uh, the things that we cling to? Lift up your eyes. See the cross of Christ who gave up everything he deserved so that you can have it by grace, by grace alone. That's the gospel. That's good news. Do you trust him? Let's pray.